Hello, and welcome to the next Mutations episode. Uh, this is a bit of a new format for me. I'm actually recording video alongside the audio uh, with a new webcam, which is uh, part of what I'm working on with the new Gapser course. But before we jump into the content today, I just wanted to mention two things. Uh, first is the coming Gepser course, which is this Sunday, February 20th at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. Uh, this is the fourth annual offering of the Gepser course, and I really hope to see some of you in class with me. Uh, we're going to be reading this book, The Ever-Present Origin, and we're going to be reading it together. And if you're just listening to this, I'm holding a very well-worn copy of The Ever-Present Origin in my hands. Lots of footnotes and uh, marginalia writing, um, lots of paper folding and page folding, and the book the book is falling apart. Um, I have taken this with me through the last three years of classes, and now this is the fourth year. It's been an honor to continue to teach Gep Gepster's work, The Ever-Present Origin, and there's a lot of benefit from reading it together with other folks who are also interested in trying to understand Gepster's own unique transmission and articulation of integral consciousness. And uh, if you've heard some of what, say, Cynthia Bourgeau has been saying about the ever-present origin in Gepser um, or Paul Smith's work, and you're interested in, in joining a community and having the support of a community around you to work through the ever-present origin and really do a deep dive, the deep dive that a book like this deserves, uh, then please join me for it. I will be, of course, uh, facilitating bi-weekly Zoom calls. We're also going to be having a Wednesday evening call, which is sort of a less formal salon-style evening session uh, at 8 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays, and I think that's 5 p.m. Pacific. And for that one, I'm, I'm going for a much more, as I said, informal, conversational, uh, connecting some of the ideas that we're we're deepening into in class with contemporary events, contemporary media, other thinkers and other philosophers. It's going to be a kind of intellectual, spiritual, mutational salon, as it were. And I really hope you can join us for that as well. Another way to, to get involved in that is actually to support me on Patreon. Go ahead and join the Mutations community on Patreon, where you'll have access to these Zoom salon calls. And I'm uh, just really looking forward to, to uh, this year, 2022, especially the kinds of um, the kinds of discussions and explorations we're going to be moving into. Quite exciting. So please join me for that. You can find more on neurolearning.com. I'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, and of course, you can always support me on Patreon, and you will always have the link to that in the show notes as well. Um, but in addition to to the, the Zoom calls and having the community, there's also a syllabus, there's extra reading material, there's some unpublished writing that I'm going to be sharing with you for my own work, uh, glossary, a syllabus, uh, there's a lot of other material there, plus pre-recorded lectures where I actually go through the chapter, um, the assigned chapters, which are curated, uh, but we go through a good bulk of the text, and I have also a backlog of pre-recorded sessions that go over any of the chapters in EPO, so um, I'm also going to be re-recording a few of those uh, those. Uh, lectures as well, just because of the updated context. So there's a lot of material. It's a very rich course. It's materially dense. There's different ways to go through it. Um, and I really recommend it. It's, it seems to be quite a space, as far as my students uh, tell me, of exploration, um, mutual learning, 
and certainly a kind of deepening into this aesthetic relational, uh, as Nora, Nora Basin would say, a kind of mutual transcontextual learning space where there's a lot of cohering around some of these ideas and um, uh, discovering it all together, I think is, is the, the, the point I'm, I'm getting at here. Every year is, is a different class and there's a different cohort, obviously, that make it into a unique experience. So I hope you join me for the 2022 one. And uh, another recommended reading, I'm going to be reading from this tonight. Uh, if you're joining me for this for this uh, this episode drop uh, and video, you're seeing me holding up my book, Seeing Through the World, with Gepser's portrait by the brilliant artist Nina Bunjavec. Um, so I'm I'm going to be assigning this book as a companion read to Ever Present Origin, as it was intended to be. Uh, so you'll have that as well. So at any rate, I hope you do join me for the class. It's going to be fantastic, I am sure. And there's a lot of students who are returning for their second or third or some of them fourth year, uh, which is almost unbelievable. Um, but Everpresent Origin and Gebser is, is certainly, it's, it's certainly a text you have to return to. It's, it's not a once over. It's, it's more like Jung or Hillman uh, or some of the great 20th century writers that have to be returned to again and again and engaged with differently whenever you do. So all that being said, uh, thank you for your support. If you need access to the class, if you can't necessarily register for uh, the registration price, um, that is by no means a way to uh, a reason to walk away. Please reach out to me, send me a DM, send me a message, and I will hook you up uh, because I don't want to turn anybody away from this course. I think uh, as many folks who are involved in, in reading with the cohort every year, the better. Um, so please send me a note. Let me know if you need a, a registration link or pay what you can model. That's also perfectly fine, um, especially in these times. So, all right. Now, in terms of this episode, uh, I kind of generated it off the cuff in terms of uh, past couple of days, a few different conversations. And I figure this is going to be called something along the lines of... Um, uh, Three theses on liminality, or something along, uh, something like that. Um, my friend Joe Lightfoot has coined this, uh, this this description for our communities, our circles, as the liminal web. And I think, like any term that comes up, you know, I, I have playfully engaged with it, uh, ironically engaged with it, but I haven't seriously picked it up in terms of is this how we want to describe ourselves uh, or not? And I'm not necessarily going to answer that question. I think it's much more fruitful to um, to play with the idea and see how each of us articulate what that actually might mean, how it might become, it might be rephrased, uh, or if it's, it's necessarily uh, who we want to be identified with, right? If there are certain members of the liminal web that we don't feel particularly comfortable with, and if they say something, uh, that means we get in, in entangled in, in, in by association, right? So, so there's a lot of reasons to be cautious about fully leaning into that term. But just for the for for the heck of it tonight, I'm going to be doing kind of exactly that uh, in terms of leaning into liminality as a theme 
how would I understand liminality? How would mutations as a podcast, as a community, as myself as a thinker, uh, informed by integral philosophy and Gibsterian thought, understand liminality? How do I come to that term? Let alone the liminal web, but first of all, liminality. And so here's three, three readings, three theses on liminality. The first would be, uh, I think any discussion about liminality has to, first of all, understand the word itself, meaning a threshold, right? Um, uh, a, a, a kind of threshold space, a, a, a border or a boundary, right? The, the edge of something. But threshold particularly. Threshold implies not a wall necessarily as something that you can't pass through, but something in which you, you can in some way engage with and mediate to pass through to another place. Um, so there's a transitional element in here. There's an there's an implication of threshold, and as I mentioned re uh, recently to a friend, limb uh, as a word is an interesting uh, kind of aside or adjacency to liminality. It's kind of the contour of light on the horizon. So there's this implication here. This uh, the constellation of meaning and images that show up of thresholds of horizons that are dimly lit either by dusk or dawn, right? and something in which we must pass through or pass over, liminality. Now, the idea of liminality is something that is not particularly new to the term liminal web. This has been described for many years, most recently in the works of, say, my friend and, and, and colleague Zach Stein from Perspectiva and the Consilience Project. Um, liminality in, in, in Zach's description is this time between worlds, that we inhabit a time between worlds. Uh, Zach's particular emphasis is education, but the idea, I think, is informed from similar, um, similar context and understanding, whether it's integral theory or William Erwin Thompson's work, this sense in which cultural transformation is occurring um, and that we can really and should ought to really look at histories and these moments of uh, of passing through thresholds, right? Passing through worldview transformations. What can we learn from those past contexts and how do we apply them today? Because we are in such a time as this. Um, so a time between worlds, a time between times, different, different epochs, right? Um, so the, 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 the images and the historical context of liminality really has to be brought in here. Um, when I'm thinking about liminality, I'm also thinking about uh, the Gebser's terminology for for this, which has more to do with um, some similar root, etymological roots. I'm thinking of a particular poem that he wrote, a poem for the dead, um, uh, something that Aaron Cheek had translated uh, a fragment from. And the line goes, to paraphrase, and these walls which seem immovable to, immovable to you are full of transformation. And, and, and Aaron brings up uh, a few ways in which etymologically Wend has a relationship with, with uh, Wanlung, which wall and transformation um, are connected, right, Germa in the Germanic language. And if you go further back, Wend and the other German roots for wall have to do with um, more of a kind of bent stick, um, a hedge, as it were, a thatched wall, something that is uh, is more root-like and branch-like uh, and supple 
something like a hedge that is alive and is a threshold, is a boundary, but it's also a place in which um, one place becomes another, right? And it's also a place in which lots of little critters live. So I like to think again of this threshold. I'm bringing up etymology. I'm bringing up images um, to, to, to set the context, uh, images of borders and horizons, transitional times. I talk about being in between and living in between. Um, being a threshold being, being a hedgerow, hedgerow critter uh, is essentially what, what is conjured up for me in terms of liminality, living in thresholds, living in the context of being in between worlds and having to habit, um, inhabit and find a, a habitable place in an inhabitable environment, perhaps, for us increasingly so. For a hedge, not so much. They're good living places. Um, but it brings up my point. And how can we find a way to better embody and see this as a, as, as a, as a time of thresh, threshold passage? And what does that actually involve for us? So that's thesis one, the etymology, the images, um, and then the history that those images conjure up. Human beings in our language seem to understand the nature of thresholds and liminality, that these are places of turnings, transformations, reversals, um, moving through the spiral of, of, of change and, and transformation, one thing becoming another. Um, and then the historical context in, in terms of, let's say, Zach's work or William Aaron Thompson's work, understanding that this is within the context of previous transformations, right? So liminality in that context. Um, but the second thesis, if we could call it uh, a thesis, is bringing in the material dimensions to this more so than just acknowledging history, acknowledging the material history. And I would say my, my, my second go-to, uh, other than the hedge, uh, would be Gramsci, Antonio Gr Gramsci, and his prison notebooks. And it's that famous line, Liminality in this context is defined thusly as, quote, the crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. So the old is dying, the new could not, is not yet born, right? The new cannot be born. What does this mean in our context? Um, liminality in this sense is that the emergent worldview is, pre uh, is, is present, is alive, that there is something in this living hedgerow of the past and the future um, where the where both are tangled up together in each other. And really that's the kind of living process of consciousness transformation. Um, but the vertiginous aspect to liminality in this context is the old and the new are mixed together. There's all sorts of strange hybridizations occurring here. Morbid symptoms appear. The old world is dying and the new cannot be born. There is a, there is a, there is a, a crisis there, right, of futurability, um, as Franco Bifo Berardi talks about. Imagining a world post-capitalist, transformed, right, society transformed, et cetera, but being embedded and in the context of conditions which are making the transformation very difficult, or resisting it, right? And finding those conditions in ourselves, ourselves, we are divided beings, we are liminal beings that are still attempting to figure out the new that wishes to be born in us and working against our own 
rebirth, right? Working against our own transformation. Uh, this is also our context, right? So the interregnum of the old and the new via Gramsci, for me, is, is a very important context for liminality. And everything that goes in context with Gramsci is, is of course, the context of um, struggling with capitalism, right? Struggling with our material histories and reimagining our societies materially. That ties back a little bit to Zach in, in, in the sense of history. Uh, but Gramsci in the, in the context of um, recognizing and being an understanding material history is intimately related with understanding material future, right? The material past and the material future. Having that material grounding in the socioeconomic and the structural and the ways in which we're making it difficult for ourselves to reimagine the world, we have to be um, literate in the sense of our material histories and the ideological and economic and um, deeper structural factors that make it very difficult that um, in that vertiginous sense, uh, make it difficult to identify the old and the new. Uh, the old co-ops the new. The old adapts the new to itself. It folds it back in. It attempts to persist. It attempts to have continuity, even though it is already transforming, even though it is being transformed by the realities it is unleashing and, and, and crashing into, in our context, the planetary, right? Industrial capitalism crashing into biospheric realities. Um, the industrial revolution and colonization unleashing um, these planetary realities are initiating many of them while not able to master them, right? Initiating and unleashing the forces of technological revolution and evolu evolution, speed and rapidity of capital, intensities of time, but not being able to mas master them, right? So there's this terrible interregnum that we exist in. That is liminality as well, right? And we have to be grounded in that material transformation of our society and of our civilization if we want to really identify ourselves as liminal. And in this sense, we have a whole history of writers, Gramsci included, that were attempting to articulate this sense of being liminal, right? Um, in this um, hyperbolic way of thinking for a moment, Gramsci is a liminal web thinker, you know, in that context. He's talking about reimagining civilization and culture and economics, et cetera, and being kind of stuck in the threshold. Um, so thesis number two, material history, interregnum as metaphor for liminality. That's important for me. Uh, three is, is, uh, more of the the the, the same, in, but it's uh, it's unpacked a bit more from the consciousness studies angle, um, and that's through, through Gebser. And I'll have a, a second quote for you from Gebser here. Um, if I could just get this open for you in my document. So this is from Gebser's uh, later chapter in Ever Present Origin. We will be discussing this in class, by the way. Um, but Gebser has his own way of articulating this. Uh, and it's very similar to Gramsci. He says, a further complicating circumstance in the realization of our stated task is inherent in the natural condition of our epoch. Since a restructuration of our form of realization is now taking place, all of its manifestations are Janus-faced. 
On the one hand, they are still bound to the consciousness structure in force until now, which to the extent that it is deficient is now threatening to collapse. Sounds familiar. Yet they are already indebted to the new, yet only gradually emerging consciousness structure, which is in process of formation. As a consequence, a certain confusion comes to the fore, because the weakened foundations of the old manner of thinking are not yet sufficiently counterbalanced by the consolidation of the new mode of perception. The last slide is important, right? The confusion is arising because the old manner of thinking, the old worldview, the old story, the old time, game A, whatever we are articulating it in our particular communities, is weakening. Its foundations are cracked. Uh, but that cracked foundation in this metaphor isn't sufficiently yet counterbalanced by a new mode of perception, a new foundation. The new foundation is still latent. It's still a kind of sapling. It's still a, it's still um, being identified and articulated. Even though we are becoming it, we are not yet fully it enough, realizing it enough in ourselves to, to, to bring it to the forefront with enough confidence, with enough realization to counteract the old, right? To supplant the old, as it were. And therefore, he uses the image of Janus' face, right? We, this is another kind of mythical image. We have thresholds and, and horizons and the limb of light that illuminates the horizon, right? Um, uh, a, a threshold crossing. We have the interregnum, um, the metaphor of birth, right? The old and the new, the old preventing the new to be, uh, from being born. And in this, we have Janus and the god who is the two-faced god, right? Um, that our world is Janus-faced. And that there's a kind of interregnum of different mutational possibilities that are arising and being co-opted by the old structure of consciousness and the old worldview, even though they have some hint of the new in them, right? And in fact, I would say that as this is a good way to help understand our liminality, right? And our role as liminal beings, beings in between different worlds and times, in identifying and cohering the new, right? Consolidating these new modes of perception ought to be our kind of MO, right? This is what we have to be constantly working on to articulate and cohere for each other and for the society in which we are living, right? Our transitional context. And this is another good line that Gebser throws in here just in terms of, uh, he says, much of what goes on today is a dissolution, but it is not just a dissolution, for dissolution also contains a solution. So there's a way in which we, sh we ought to be looking at these ruptures, tensions, vertigos, vortices uh, of the old and the new as a very interesting place to lean into, because there is something in latent in there about those vortices and those confusions that can um, also be a, a way to cohere the emergent worldview for ourselves and strengthen its voice, strengthen and clarify what actually is coming up in terms of transformations of culture and consciousness. Um, and part of this uh, thesis, number, number three, is uh, a, a reading, one more reading for you uh, from Gloria Anzaldúa. And I bring up Gloria Anzaldúa because... Uh, she as a thinker um, is is so dramatically underappreciated in 
countercultural spaces. And I, I very often I, I find myself one of the few who are coming in as, as um, uh, a non-white context, uh, just my, myself and my own Mexican heritage and all, Gloria Anzaldúa is how it's how I'm familiar with her work. Um, she's uh, articulating liminality, civilizational liminality, beautifully, profoundly, brilliantly, in this work. That it's it's frustrating to not have this shared around more. Um, but but perhaps I'll be doing that, and and perhaps it's for the best that it's not being co uh, her work is not being co opted per se. Um, but I I love this passage. It's from Light in the Dark. Uh, and here is she talking, she's talking about this worldview transition that we're in and cracks in our perception. She says, what cracked is our perception of the world, how we relate to it, how we engage with it. Afterward, we view reality differently. We see through its rendijas, holes, H-O-L-E-S, to the illusion of consensual reality. The world as we know it ends. We experience a radical shift in perception, otra forma de ver. And she describes this um, as napantla, a psychological liminal space between the way things had been and an unknown future, napantla. Napantla is the space in between the locus and sign of transition. In napantla, we realize that realities clash, authority figures of the various groups demand contradictory commitments, and we and others have failed live, living up to idealized goals. We're caught in remolinos, vortexes, each with different, often contradictory forms of cognition, perspectives, worldviews, belief systems, all occupying the transitional napatna space. Torn between ways, we seek to find some sort of harmony amid the remolinos of multiple conflictive worldviews. We must learn to integrate all these perspectives. Uh, and then she continues a bit further on talking about this. Interestingly, in Napatna, we undergo the anguish of changing our perspectives and crossing a series of cruz cale, junctures, thresholds, some leading to a different way of relating to people and surroundings and others to the creation of a new world. Napatneras, such as artistas, activistas, help us mediate these transitions, help us make the crossings and guide us through the transformation process, a process I call Conocimiento. She also invokes the image, another mythical image, of Coyohuaqui. Coyohuaqui is the goddess, the moon, uh, who goes, of course, through that waxing and waning of dismemberment and violence and then regeneration. And this move between um, uh, dissolution and solution, between atomization and fragmentation and then regeneration, is another image for the remaking of the world that we are undergoing today, presently. Um, uh, there is a word for this or a description that she uses, and she calls this the Koyohaki imperative. And as Napatleras, right, living in Napatla, living in this liminal time, and at being Napatleras, the function, and she mentions artists, she mentions activists, she uses the word mediate um, through this process conocimiento, right? It's a transformational process. And we as liminal agents um, working in between worlds, our role is to help that transformational process along, both in ourselves, in our communities, in relationship with each other, and 
the world as a whole. Easier said than done, of course. Uh, but she also describes this as the koyo huaki imperative, right? An, an ethical imperative of our time. Um, and I bring that up, I guess, um, last as the conclusion of these three theses. Because of how powerful and coherent and clear uh, her articulation of the koyo huaki imperative and being napatleras um, is not only for myself, uh, but also how it brings up that this is not something that is um, merely contemporaneous, right? Something that the West has finally discovered, sure, um, that that uh, everyone is involved in this process of transition at this point, but that many different cultures and communities and have gone through the endings of worlds as a process of these forces of colonization and capitalism and in the industrial revolution, right? Worlds have been ending, right? That this planetary transition that we're identifying as present has been going on for hundreds of years. Um, and I think this is an important context to bring up as William, er uh, William Erwin Thompson, William Gibson brings up that the future is not evenly distributed, right? It's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And I would say this liminal context, this transition between worldviews is already here and it has been here. It just hasn't been evenly distributed. And in some ways, this means that cultures that have dealt with the process, processes of colonization, um, the destruction of worldviews, are living in the future. This is kind of a play of meaning that Nick Estes has for his book, uh, "We Are We Are Your Future," I believe it's called, um, about about uh, North American indigenous uh, justice and struggles for justice. There is a sense in which um, the move at whatever we're going into, right? The processes of colonization have thrown other communities and societies into the future in that sense. They've already been in liminal spaces and zones and finding ways to live in those hedgerows, um, in those very inhospitable hedgerows between worlds. So how can we make this time more hospitable? How can we make it more habitable and friendlier? Um, how can we really learn to be Nepantleras in this sense of mediators and guides through the vortexes, through the dizzying transformations that are occurring all around us. And part of this, of course, is as she says, and as Gepser also says, there's a transition of um, worldview, of consciousness transformation. This is a spiritual work. This is psycho-spiritual work. This is um, communal and social work. This is a reimagination of our, of our society from... Uh, if there's a through line through the three theses that I've brought up, um, it is the perhaps the poetic imaginal context, right? The images. It is the material historical context, not only with Zach's work, but Gramsci's work, and the emphasis in the 20th and 19th century of um, activist movements and social movements that have been working at this idea, however imperfectly. Uh, attempting to reimagining themselves, uh, reimagine their economics, etc. So the second one would be these material histories that liminality is existing um, under the material conditions of the capitalocene, and attempting to reimagine those conditions. Right. So this is a structural, a material, historical, an economic transformation, 
an ideological transformation, right? So that's really what I'm getting at with with two, thesis two with Gramsci. That's liminality. Uh, thesis three is more of that emphasis on the spiritual and the consciousness transformation that, of course, is entangled in the second one as well um, with, its, with its decolonial context, with its um, post-human context. Uh, but with number three, thesis three, the emphasis is we have to go to the roots in that context, right? In the context of um, the shift of worldview is necessarily um, this profound disorientation of our relationship with time and space and self and the mythologies, right? The cultural mythologies of time. Think about modernity and its identity with progress, with with the machines of progress and capital, right? Economics was certainly a part of that, but the sort of directive history and the sense of loss that we've been undergoing in, in, in the post and meta modernity, this feeling that time has slowed down in the sense of progress and other forms of reality, natural, biospheric, planetary, um, have come crashing in, right? There's a kind of entropic process. There's a kind of loss of faith in the future, which I would say is a worldview dissolution that has to be looked at. And that's part of three. But also part of three is this careful warning that, um, that the new, the conditions of the new, the manifestations of the new, technological, social, economic, et cetera, are going to be Janus-faced, right? In, the, in that interregnum, they're going to be Janus-faced uh, in that they will have con conditions and aspects of the new, but very often become subsumed by the old, right? The old does not allow the new to be born quite yet. So there is a sort of dialectical push-pull tension that's going on um, of dissolution and solution, as Gebser is talking about. Um, and then, of course, with Gloria Anzaldúa, it's wrapping all of that together and really clearly defining what the task or the role of the integralist or the uh, um, mediator, the liminalist. Oh God, I, I I was hoping not to use that word in in, in the context of this conversation uh, with with my listeners, but um, uh, liminalist. I, I joked that 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 could be a word for us and. Um, well, I'm going to publish this, so I guess it's out there. But I would say uh, my preference is Napotleris. Um, to be in the middle is to have this Koyohaki imperative of um, assisting in the transformation. And as Gebser talks about, too, uh, part of the problem is, is identifying the old from the new, right? Like, how are we still employing the old worldview when we really shouldn't be anymore? Um, and how is that confusing and muddling things up? How is that intensifying the crisis rather than intensifying the clarity of this emergent worldview or planetary culture, et cetera? Um, how do we do that? That's not an easy answer, but that's the threshold to really be living in. That's the liminality we really need to be living in and, and, and inhabiting these days. Um, so those are the three theses. Um, liminality as threshold or hedgerow. Liminality is the interregnum of Gramsci and the material histories, right? Consciousness of those. And three, the liminality of worldviews or consciousness transformation, um, which 
wraps all of those together, right? And really gets us to the core, uh, really gets us to the roots of the transformation. It's a psycho-spiritual, it's a material historical. It's nothing less than that, I'll tell you. It's nothing less than that, which means it's everything. Um, I wanted to maybe conclude as a, as, a, as a little teaser for the course, but also for um, an applicable reading of, uh, from my book, Seeing Through the World, uh, one of the later chapters where I'm going over, uh, this is chapter six, The Integral A Perspective, A World, Time, Freedom, and Its Contemporary Manifestations. If you've stuck around with mutations um, for a bit, you may already be familiar with this section. Um, but I wanted to give an example of a sort of planetary mythology, as William Aaron Thompson coined back in the 70s, um, a planetary myth concerning this interregnum or Janus-faced reality where the old worldview or the old story, um, even though it, ha- it does not and cannot master the emergent consciousness, the emergent complex realities of this planetary context, can nevertheless, uh, through its own hubris and innovations and and dynamics of power, unleash planetary reality. It can initiate planetary reality, but it cannot master it. This is the distinction Gebser also makes. Um, and that dynamic interregnum and tension is also a place of liminality that I would like us to keep in mind. So this is... Uh, later section of that same chapter. Gebser describes the crisis of time eruption in the mental world as a frenzied rush, pushing ever outward the boundaries of the microcosm as well as of the macrocosm, dissolving, indeed destroying and exploding rather than overcoming the spatial structure, the spatials, Gebser's way of describing the worldview that's currently imploding right now, Cartesian, um, industrial, technological, secular, colonial, spatial, expansionist, right? All of that kind of constellation of the modernist world, which for all of the benefits it's given us in terms of contemporary science and the scientific method, um, it, it has also brought these other dimensions as well, of course. Um, for the late philosopher Paul Virilio, the signature of technological modernity is in its dromology, its speed. Imagine a motorcycle racing down a superhighway of the future, traveling so fast it becomes a streak of light zipping into the horizon, which is not the stars, not the sky above, but the electric lights of the megacity below. The city is Neo-Tokyo, and this is Akira. Uh, uh, reading that now, I'm realizing how that sounds like... Um, uh, like a Twilight Zone episode opening. Uh, the city is Neo-Tokyo, and this is Akira. This 1988 Japanese film, directed by Katsuhiro Otomo, and based on the same titled manga series, was one of the first anime films that struck a resonant chord in Western culture. Humming with the same edgy, technical vitalism, another appropriate Virilio term, of what was then an emerging literary and cinematic genre of cyberpunk, popularized by William Gibson's Neuromancer or Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Akira is suffused with a kind of primal power and mutational urgency. It's a word that some of you may be familiar with from one of my more recent essays, Mutations, Imagination, and Futurability. A mutational urgency in everything from its 
entrancing percussive soundtrack to his depiction of a hypertrophied post-apocalyptic industrialism. Foreboding chants enunciate the coming of a new consciousness for our anti-hero, Tetsuo, a young member of a Neo-Tokyo biker gang who, during a high-speed chase, crashes his bike into a child with psychic powers. As Virilio notes, speed is the signature note of the machine's power. But when we invented the automobile, we also invented the crash. And this is another emphasis here when we're looking at modernity in the old worldview. Speed is really one of the, um, in the, in the machine as, as a kind of secular icon, right? Zipping fast into the future as the Italian futurists depict is, is a, such a great way to um, encapsulate the, the kind of uh, feeling tone, the social imaginary, and then and, and the, the kind of underlying worldview image of modernity, right? Um, the machine that has mastered space and is attempting to master and overcome time. But as he's, as Virilio is saying, um, there's a, there's always, a, there's a great shadow side to modernity, right? Every innovation creates a shadow that then needs to be integrated um, and often is only integrated through its crashing, right? Through it falling apart. We didn't realize it didn't work this ways. Um, modernity as a whole is, is a kind of, writ large a, a, a machine that crashes into the biosphere of Gaia. Uh, you know, um, when we invented modernity, as it were, as an analog here, just an analogy, we invented the ecological collapse in, in, in relationship to modernity, right? So we're learning the shadow side, we're learning the latencies of modernity, right, by dealing with what we're dealing with now. And for those who are wondering, um, this is how I do the courses. So if you want to read through Gepser with me in this context, please feel free to sign up or, or join the mutation salon to continue. As Tetsuo recovers from the accident, he realizes that the crash and the child who was fleeing from a secret government lab unlocked some new psychic mutation in himself. We learned that old Tokyo was destroyed during World War III, not by a nuclear attack, but a psychic bomb. Akira, another test subject from the military science lab, was involved in a catastrophic accident that leveled Tokyo to the ground through a terrifying psychic implosion, a mental singularity. His remains, like an Egyptian pharaoh, were placed by scientists in glass urns and hidden in a vault deep in the subterranean layers of the city. The film asks, what would a bacterial cell do if it suddenly mutated and gained the consciousness of a human being? By the same measure, what would a human being do if it achieved some vast evolutionary leap into superconsciousness? Would we be able to wield such power without destroying ourselves? Toward the end of the film, Tetsuo has completely lost control of his newfound power. While fighting against the military and his friend Kanida, he has regenerated his arm through a body horror assemblage of wires and machine detritus. His new arm writhes like a band of snakes, all mesh and wire, seeming to have a will of its own, and hinting to us that Tetsuo's powers are truly out of control, a motif echoed in the 1989 cyberpunk horror film Tetsuo the Iron Man. In the movie's finale, certainly infamous in cinema history for its shocking body horror, Tetsuo's hypertrophied ego, hypertrophied, right, too, too big, too expanded, overdone, hypertrophied ego cannot contain his consciousness mutation any longer. 
He inflates like a dying star into what looks like a giant baby. Flesh oozes like an octopus out of water, and tentacled arms writhe about in all directions. Tetsuo cries for help. He is at last undone, undone by his own power. At this scene, one thinks of Kubrick's parallel film, 2001, A Space Odyssey, and David Bowman's Star Child. But Tetsuo has yet to make the evolutionary leap into the new consciousness. However, just like Bowman, Tetsuo has an evolutionary midwife who makes an appearance and guides him through to the other side of the singularity. Akira materializes just in time to take Tetsuo into a new dimension. It is worth noting that the boy, Akira, is depicted as a luminescent and transparent human body. The city of Neo-Tokyo is saved, and the final scene moves us through to a cosmic light, perhaps another Big Bang, with Tetsuo's voice exclaiming from the void in cosmic jubilee, I am Tetsuo. As a film, Akira functions as what William Irwin Thompson describes as a planetary mythology a singular distillation of what is happening collectively in consciousness and culture. Like Gepser's image of the crowned prince of Crete, so perfectly expressing the move from the magic to the mythic, right? the magic to the mythic structures of consciousness. I won't unpack it right now. You can take the course for that or maybe ask me during a, a mutation salon. Perhaps like no other film, Akira concretizes the Janus-faced ambiguity of the perspective of world and its unleashing of time the upending and overwhelming energy of the a integral achronon as a power that cannot be mastered either by the hypertrophied ego or the spatializing mental mental structure tetsuo was intoxicated by the powers unleashed within him but from the initial elation of ego and its frenzy of self-aggrandizement follows its overextension and demise the mutation happening to tetsuo like the new integral realization in our own world, bursts out of such restrictions and manifests as an animating and speeding force, Virilio's dromology. The new consciousness, when not consciously integrated, manifests as an increasing intensity upon the old. Here's another definition of the liminal. The new consciousness, when not consciously integrated, manifests as an increasing intensity upon the old. We're dealing with this everywhere in our culture. The old, rather than being consciously overcome, becomes unconsciously overwhelmed. The image of Neo-Tokyo, with its runaway forces of technological evolution, time eruption, and consciousness intensification, is an image of our world, a myth concerning the birth of planetary culture and the homo integer. Homo integer, the integral human. So that's from seeing through the world. And I, I feel it sums up this, this context of liminality for us and being in that interregnum between worldviews, unleashing the powers and conditions which destroy our own worldview because we cannot master them and requiring us to move into a different relationship with the very forces that we are unleashing in the negative sense, but also in the constructive and the emergent and the regenerative sense. And that's where, of course, um, Anzal Dua comes in so strongly for me in the sense of... Um, the 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 conocimiento, uh, the imperative that she talks about, the koyohaki imperative to regenerate, right? To aid in, in the assistance of this passage of, through this threshold, through this liminality, um, to aid in the transformation of worldview, 
to be in a certain sense in this metaphor, like Akira is for Tetsuo to aid in that transformation. Unfortunately for us, we have to be the liminalist, I use the word again, liminalist um, mediators between worldviews. Uh, and we are, we are the folks who are undergoing this crisis, who are undergoing this crisis of being completely hapless with technological um, disruption, economic momentum, right? Like there's, there's this dragging of feet to, to do anything. Like look at COP26 in, in any kind of dramatic uh, transformative way that's needed right now. Um, that looks like entropy on the one hand, and on the other hand, it looks like a machine that's out of our control at this point. We just have to keep pedaling faster and harder. That's a metaphor I, I borrow from Daniel Quinn's work, um, the hapless airman, as as a as a metaphor for our society. It's fairly apt as well. So I, all of these things circle through my mind when we end up talking about liminality, the material, historical, economic transformation, the consciousness, ontological, spiritual transformation, and then this sort of mythic, imaginal transformation, which the image of threshold really conjures up. I think all of the other examples bring in some kind of image, whether it's Janus or Koyohwaki or um, a planetary myth like Akira, um, perhaps as a through line, um, the aesthetic and creative dimensions of liminality, of being in between worlds also needs to be brought up. The decolonial context needs to be brought up here, as I was mentioning earlier. Um, all of that is liminality for me. So if we can use liminality in this context, then we can call ourselves liminalists or um, our context being liminal. Uh, but we're all in it, is, I guess is my point. Uh, specific communities, if they are to have a role uh, and identify themselves in some way, I think it is important to ground themselves in those material socioeconomic histories, those uh, uh, an awareness of the ideologies, an awareness of the material histories, an awareness that the material transformation is, is also what we're talking about here. So we need to become literate, literate about all of that. Um, and then underneath that, or in continuum with that, um, this relationship with consciousness and cultural transformation, right? The socioeconomic material, the consciousness, spiritual, social. They're a continuum. They're a Mobius strip of becoming. They have to be looked at as a whole in continuity with each other. That's liminality for me. That's, that's what it means for me to be in a time between worlds, in a time of liminality. And to be a liminalist or nepotleris is, is to be both the person helping that transition and the person undergoing that transition at the same time. So it's a lot of work and um, we have to help each other. So I don't want to be too, too hard on the, on the term, uh, but I do, if, if we already begin using it, I would like to see it really grounded um, in these two these twofold ways, right? The material historical transformation through Gramsci and Interregnum as an example, as a starting place. And then the worldview structure, spiritual dimension as well, because those are the hardest to get to, the hardest often to see. Um, and, and, and this play, right? Like being liminal means that new stuff isn't entirely new. It's probably mixed up in old 
ways of thinking and being in the world. And so part of learning to transform and mediate the Pantleras, um, existing on these thresholds, is um, learning to articulate and, and differentiate the old from the new in ourselves as this is all playing out in the communities that we're employing and uh, enacting together to navigate this transformation. We're going to be re reifying the old in some ways, but we're also going to be um, holding in our palms the new. Uh, I, I just think we have to be careful about it and be as, as, as open as we can about it um, because it's not always easy to distinguish the old from the new. Both uh, Gloria Anzaldúa and uh, William Aaron Thompson uh, talk about this sort of uh, way in which collapse and darkness and confusion also help us begin to understand a sort of a negative image of the emergent planetary. And Anzaldúa uses vortices or vortexes uh, in a similar way that uh, Marshall McLuhan uses the vortex when he's talking about Edgar Allan Poe's maelstrom poem, right? Uh, the, the, and he uses that as a metaphor, right? To be in the maelstrom, to be in the vortex, to be in the storm is really to be navigating this time between worlds. For McLuhan, it was this disruptive, chaotic era of, of worldview transformation because of communication mediums, the move from print to electronic, which he saw us undergoing presently is nothing less than a civilizational transformation. It's like the, the innovation of writing, right? Um, it's that world overturning. And these are very um, uh, disruptive times. So the vortex and the vortex is another image that I kind of want to highlight for us too as, as a good liminal image at a time where we have to kind of have empathy that everyone's mostly confused about what's going on, right? Um, and then, then to conclude, I think, is, is just to emphasize that there are many people who are already living and have been living in this planetary context and have been living in the future. And uh, for me, at least, my understanding is to allow the communities that have been cast into the future, thrown, from, uh, thrown into that threshold of one world collapsing and another becoming uh, to learn from them because they they have already been doing this work, right? And maybe folks in the West and Game B community uh, um, technologists are, are waking up very slowly to this. And they're also the wielders of particular socioeconomic centers of power and innovation. And so they have the ear and the voice of the public. Um, and that's fine. But I think part of the, the imperative for those individuals who may, for, for whatever reason, may be listening to me, um, would be to listen to those who have already been cast into the future, to be listening to those who um, their past are our futures in the sense of everything. We're, we're all going through it now. And there are folks who've already been out here. Listen to them. They have a lot that uh, you might need to hear. <laughs> Uh, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. But this, to me, is what being liminal could mean. If there are enough of us who are able to articulate this in their own way, I would become more comfortable using liminal and liminalist to talk about it. But we're all in the liminal times. And I guess that's my point, right? We're all sharing this planetary transition right now.
and the civilization we have been forced to live within or have gladly been enacting and enforcing on others for the past few hundred years, however we fall on whatever side, or maybe we fall on both with my own history as a Mexican mestizo. I, I, I am the colonizer and the colonized in terms of my ancestry. Um, this world is no longer a habitable world. There is no habitable present in this world. Um, we have to look elsewhere beyond the utopianism of modernity, beyond the mythological sense of images of progress. So that's what we have to shape together. How are we going to do that? Well, that's the liminal question, isn't it? Um, so three theses on liminality. There they are for you. Maybe this was coherent. And uh, for those who are um, watching as well, thanks for just allowing me to just stare into the camera um, this evening and, and talk through a lot of these uh, themes that have been on my mind. Thanks for listening. Once again, I hope I see some of you on Sunday for the Gepser course, Seeing Through the World. Check the show notes for information on that. And uh, if that's not an option, consider joining me on Patreon, where you will have access to weekly Zoom calls and our Discord. Um, we also host Thursday Discord calls as well. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening and stay safe, mutants. <laughs> I don't know. I'll think of a good way to end this, but that's all for now. Thanks again for listening. Take care.